sublime, simple, not simplistic, but simple. Great is thy faithfulness. At the end of life, John Newton was apt to say, I've come to realize two great things. I am a great sinner, and Jesus Christ is a great Savior. That's it. That's an ocean. Oh, may he teach us these deep, sublime, childlike things. Not childish things, but childlike. To have faith, to take him at his word. That when we walk through the valley, when we walk through the difficulty, when we walk through the uh, oncology uh, floor there at St. Mary's perhaps, or uh, respiratory or the cardiac ward, we would be able to say, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. It's just simple, isn't it? It's not complex. Just simple, just trust in him to be who he says he is. Let's do that today. Let's turn in uh, Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews 7, we're going to be looking at verses uh, 20 through 28, the superior priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The church that the preacher is addressing is undergoing great difficulty. They're uh, being scorned and ostracized. Some are being persecuted for their faith, and they're contemplating, is it really worth it? Is it really worth following Jesus of Nazareth to to follow a crucified Savior? They're having a hard time squaring up the kingdom of God in all of its glory with the humiliation of the king. Some are contemplating abandoning Christ and turning back. But the author uh, does something quite unusual. Typically, when we are counseling folks, we want to help people. Right, It's easy as a minister to give you seven tips on how to be a better uh, engineer, better husband, better wife, better kid, you know, whatever. But that's not what he does. He comes and he makes this, this, this grandiose case for the supremacy of Jesus Christ. He, he gives them doctrine of all things. He gives them a bunch of indicatives. He doesn't give them a bunch of imperatives. You see, we're kind of wired for imperatives. We want to do. And the gospel says done. And that's why it's so hard for us to get it sometimes. Because we're pretty accomplished folk. I look out there and I look at you and I think, wow, who am I? To be called to minister to this group. And yet God in his goodness, in the foolishness of his ways, has called me to preach Jesus Christ. The indicative and the implications of of the imperative, that Jesus is, is better. He's, he's better than all that preceded him. He's, he's better than the angels. He's, he's better than Moses. He's, he's better than Joshua. He is the Lord who brings his people into that rest that Adam failed to bring there in Genesis chapter 1 to 3. That Jesus, the last Adam, brings creation to its destination. He brings it to its telos, to its end. The last time we were together, we, we saw, we began to look at the superiority of, of Christ's priesthood. That it's superior to the Levitical priesthood. The, the Levitical priesthood was just painting with numbers. Right? Remember back in COVID, the, they were coloring books were the fad. I would go into Barnes and & Noble and I'd see adult coloring books. 
And I think there's something to that. I think it was because we're so distracted, right? We're so um, consumed with digital everything that someone had the bright idea, and it was bright, I don't mean that sarcastically, to, to focus us, and coloring books became the rave. Well, the Old Testament is a coloring book. It's a picture book. But the reality, the substance is Jesus Christ. It all points to him. It all finds its destination in him. Well, today we're going to look at this argument of the superiority of Christ and his priesthood over the, superior, over the inferior priesthood of Leviticus uh, by looking at verses 20 to 28. But I want to begin reading just by way of context with verse 11. Again, now he's comparing, he's beginning this argument, and it's quite dense, right? It, it's thick, right? It's, it's a lot of brush, and all of it's vital, and all of it is important, but we have to tease it out. It's kind of like teasing out your, your daughter's hair when she's little. It's all tangly in the morning. You have to be very careful, right? You brush it because you don't want to hurt her. So you have to take a time, and, and that's what it does. It takes time to unpack all that God's saying. But they, they couldn't understand it. They were dense. They were dull. They wanted the seven tips, right? They wanted the seven helps of how you can be a better uh, employee. And he says, I don't want to give you that. that. Not that that's not important, but that's derivative. That's an implication of the gospel. I want to give you the gospel. I want to give you Melchizedek, and I want to show you that Christ has a priesthood not in the order of Aaron, not in the order of a priest that couldn't bring the results promised, but I want to tell you about the priest who's been given this eternal priesthood, who seals the deal, not with the blood of bulls and goats, but with his own blood, God's own blood and God's Son, Jesus Christ. So listen now as I, I read. I'm going to begin at verse 11. We're going to go through the end through 28. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it people received the law, what further need would there have been for a, another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe, that being Jesus, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, right, the, the tribe of the king. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident or clear when another priest arrives or arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement, that is, not on the basis of the Mosaic Covenant, concerning bodily descent, that is, concerning genealogy, who's your father, and who's your father's father, and so forth and so on, but by the power of an indestructible life, that is, by the power of a resurrected life. For it is witnessed of him, in Psalm 110, verse 4, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment, that is, the Moses Levitical priesthood is set aside because of its weaknesses and uselessness. 
for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it's not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. That is a Levitical priesthood. They didn't have an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath. By the one who said to him, again, Psalm 110, verse 4, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, this priest who's been given this eternal priesthood in the order of Melchizedek, the Lord Jesus Christ, from the tribe of Judah, he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost or forever or completely those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting or or suitable or appropriate that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily for his own sins and then for those of the people. Since he did this once for all when he offered up himself for the law that is Moses appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath from Psalm 110 verse 4 which came later hundreds of years than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. You see the, the complex argument he's making? the logical argument, that Christ is superior. So why would you return to that which is inferior? Why would you go back to the training wheels of the old covenant when the reality Jesus Christ has come? May God give us hearts and minds to dwell and to think deeply upon these things, even this morning. Let's pray. Lord, you're a holy God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The earth is filled with your glory. We pause in these few minutes to reflect on that glory and that holiness and the bridge that you have made in Jesus Christ with a high priest, not in the order of Aaron and Levi, but a high priest in the order of an eternal priesthood in the order of Melchizedek. That his priesthood comes with an oath. That it's permanent. And that it's perfect because he's perfect. And it's able to perfect all who come to you, Father, with all of our blemishes, and thought, word, and deed, and all of our sin, and all of the junk, and all of the crud, and all of the brokenness, all the heretical thoughts we have about you, you come and you clean us because Jesus Christ came into the Holy of Holies, not with the blood of bulls, 
not in the blood of a sacrificial animal, but he came with his own blood. The innocent, unstained, undefiled blood of the Lamb of God. Come now. Bless the words of my mouth, the meditation of our heart, as we think upon these things, the beauty and the glory of Jesus. May you fill our hearts with thanksgiving. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Well, what did you think of that strange chapter that I had Wes read? I was thinking of Wes this week as I chose that chapter. It is a strange chapter, is it not? That book of Leviticus, you know, the one we kind of speed read through in our yearly reading. With all the complicated imagery and pictures that are painted for us there. All to teach us of the holiness of God. God holy in your thinking? Perhaps today you've come here and you're just a little too familiar with the God of heaven and earth. Your thinking is too small. You have grandiose thoughts of men, but you have small thoughts about God. Well, the book of Leviticus is given to teach us that God is great, that God is holy. To teach us that he's holy, holy, holy. And the absolute requirement of ceremonial perfection of those who would serve him and those who would draw near to him. Some of the things that would disqualify a man... Even if he had the pedigree, right? Even if he had the, the resume, right? He had the genealogy. He was Aaron's son or Levi, right? He could have it all, but yet if he were to make contact with a dead body, he would be disqualified. If he had a bald patch on his head, and I thought to myself, well, I don't know about that one. That's, uh, that's a little close to home. If he had any self-inflicted cuts... If he was blind or lame, if he had an injured foot or hand, he would be no go. And all of these and many more would disqualify a man from serving. You see, perfection was an absolute. And if you think about it just a moment, notice they're all external. Suppose he would have said, uh, a man who had clean hands and a pure heart only. Who could serve? I'll wait a moment if you want to raise your hand. We'd all be out, wouldn't we? You see, that's why the Old Testament's a picture book, because it's longing, it's pregnant with the expectation of one who would come with clean hands and a pure heart. In thought, word, and deed, perfect, because that's what you need. Notice what it said in Leviticus, no one who has a blemish shall approach God. You need to sit in that a little bit. I need to sit in that a little bit. No one who has a blemish. Do you have blemishes? Yeah, I can see some of them. I know some of them. And he knows all of them. Even the ones that you hide and you put up the veneer and hide behind. God sees everything. So a superior priest was needed. 
what was only pictured for us in the Old Covenant, but secured in Christ. Uh, this superior priest, uh, a priesthood that comes by an oath, a, a priesthood that's permanent, and a priesthood that's perfect. And that's how we're going to look at this this morning. Christ's priesthood comes by word of an oath. It's superior not only because it comes by an oath, but because it's permanent, it's eternal, it's forever. It can save to the uttermost. And then lastly, it's perfect. Just as God's perfect, it's hard for us to get our head around perfect, isn't it? You think of the most impressive person you have ever met. What are they but men with clay feet who will fail you given enough time? Are but vapor. God says, be ye perfect. We need a perfect priest. We need a priest who's been given a, a priesthood according to an oath. In verses 20 to 22, that's the first point. Christ's priesthood is superior because it comes by word of an oath. Now, he's just told them in verses 18 and 19 that with the coming of Christ, there's been a radical change in the priesthood. The shelf life of Moses is done. It's done. It's over. It's, <laughs> it's final. There's no going back to Moses. What the types and shadows of the old covenant, Lebronical priesthood, could not accomplish and what couldn't they not accomplish? That is perfection. They could not bring you near to God. They could not make you righteous before God. Those sacrifices, those animal sacrifices, the blood of bulls and goats could not seal the deal and accomplish what they prefigured and foreshadowed. And rightly so. Because human sin requires human blood. For the soul that sins shall surely die. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So there's the dilemma. God is holy, and I'm a sinner. And no one who has a sin, a blemish, can approach the living God. So that begs the question, right? You get to Malachi, where is this priest? Where, where is this eternal priest? This unblemished one, this unstained one, this seed of Abraham. Where is he? Where is the priest? Abraham, you said God would provide. Why is he? Where is he? Where is the holy priest? The one with the clean hands and the pure heart who can approach God for me. But he's told us that this picture book of the old covenant, this Mosaic covenant, is now over. That Christ has now drawn near in the order of Melchizedek, an eternal priesthood. But the preacher knows that some might be questioning among themselves whether or not God will once again change his mind. And he reassures them that unlike the Levitical priesthood in the Old Covenant, the, the priesthood that Christ had inherited, according to verse 20, was not without an oath. Well, when was this oath given? It wasn't given at Sinai in Exodus 20, in Deuteronomy 5. When was it given? It was given in Psalm 110, verse 4, to David, the king. The Lord said to my Lord. Right? You remember that. Seen there in verse 21. This one, David's greatest son, Messiah Jesus, was made a priest 
with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. Beloved, not only did God swear that David's son's priesthood would endure forever, notice also this, that the covenant Lord was emphatic. He's made an oath, he's made a promise, and he swears emphatically, I'm not going to change my mind. This is it. Jesus Christ is given an eternal priesthood, and he's going to come in the fullness of time when the days of the Mosaic law will be over and the guardian will give way to the reality, Jesus Christ. In the fullness of time, Jesus Christ came born under the law, right, the Mosaic law, the Mosaic covenant, that he might set us free from the bondage of sin's guilt and sin's power. And now that the seed of Abraham has arrived, those who trust that seed shall be saved. The guardian of the law's days are done. And now Christ has come with another priesthood. He's sworn. Jesus is the Melchizedekian priest. And I thought about it all week. I was going to have a hard time saying that word. That's a hard word. But you're a priest forever. Jesus Christ, David's greatest son. With the coming of Christ, the Levitical priesthood is now obsolete. It had served God's purpose, but the seed has arrived. And we're told in verse 22, this makes Jesus, now notice what it says here in the word of God, it makes Jesus the guarantor, the surety of what? Of a better covenant. Better promise, better sacrifice, better blood, best son. It's in his blood. He becomes the surety. He becomes the underwriter. This is an illegal term, guarantor. It's kind of like this in modern parlance. It's kind of like the person who co-signs for you for that car. That when you don't pony up, and they come calling, well, you know you're late on your, your payments. We're going to have to repossess the car. And the guarantor, the surety, steps into the void. And he said, I got this. I got this. I've sworn. I'm legally bound to fulfill the obligation that he, that she, that we, that I have failed to pay. I'll pay. I'll pay the price. I'll give whatever's necessary, whatever's required. I'll lay down my life. I'll give my blood. I'll do whatever for my people. God will certainly fulfill his promise to do what the old covenant only foreshadowed in the sacrificial system. That is to secure forgiveness of sin and bring sinners near to God. To do the very thing the law was inadequate to do. What could the law not do? It could not bring what? Perfection. Jesus the surety, Jesus the guarantor brings perfection. 
does he bring it for? He brings it for you. Because unless you're without blemish, you cannot come near to God. I don't care who you are. You're not coming near the holy God of Israel without perfection. You need a mediator. You need an advocate. You need a defense attorney, one to stand in your stead, one to pay your obligation. And that's what Jesus Christ did. You see, he's the co-signer. He's been given a priesthood that's eternal, whose blood speaks a better word. Earlier in chapter 6, 13 to 18, we're told there, when God desired to show more convincingly to Abraham and to his heirs the unchangeable character of his purpose, God guaranteed it with an oath so that with two unchangeable things, what are those two unchangeable things? God's word and God's oath, that we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. And here, once again, in chapter 7, verses 20 to 22, we have another oath that was given by God. Why? Why would God give an oath? Isn't God's word good enough? Doesn't that just settle it? God said it. That settles it. I believe it. We, we have that bumper sticker on the car. But you see what he does? God comes and accompanies his promise with an oath. To give you these two unchangeable things that I'm going to be God to you. I'm going to do what I've promised to do. So that we who have fled to Christ might have assurance that our doubts this morning might be swallowed up with his goodness and his faithfulness. Church, Jesus will always be your high priest. God has sworn he will never change his mind. For his son is his final word, his final and perfect high priest forever. You can't help but think, was this not what Wesley was meditating on when he penned these words? Before the throne, my surety stands. My name is written on his hands. You see, he knew of God's oath. He entrusted himself to Jesus Christ. Have you entrusted yourself to Jesus Christ? Are you somehow thinking this morning because you're religious and because you do religious things that God's going to accept you? That's what the Pharisees believed. We have Abraham for our father. I've read Edwards and Burkhoff and Beza. I memorized chapter 3 of book 3 of Calvin's Institutes. What is your hope? What is your anchor? See, if there's even a smidgen of self-righteousness in you, it will destroy you. I'm not so much worried about your sin of transgressions as I am about your sin of self-righteousness this morning. What is your boast? Who's your anchor, kids? Oh, my daddy's a minister. My daddy's an elder. I don't care. Are you trusting in the surety, the guarantor, Jesus Christ, the great high priest? 
than him alone. Alone. That's what separates Christianity from the rest of the religions of the world. Every other religion of the world will say, yeah, believe in Jesus. And Muhammad and Buddha and Hare Krishna and your 401k and Bitcoin and whatever. It's all, I don't want to use the word. If I was Lutheran, I would. You see your hope this morning. Young person, are you trusting Christ and Him alone? You've been an elder 30 years, are you trusting Christ? His unblemished record, the cosigner, your surety. My name is written on his hands. Spurgeon said, the law is satisfied. We owe nothing. For we have obeyed it actively and passively in the person of our surety. Even the infinite holiness of God can demand nothing of any believer but what the Lord beholds and accepts on the believer's behalf in Christ our representative. Isn't that amazing? God can not come to you today and say you haven't done enough. Done, finished. When Jesus says it's finished, there in John 19, 31, at 3 o'clock on that afternoon in April in 33 AD, when he said it's finished, what is it? Church, let's say it. It's finished. It's finished. Jesus, I am resting, resting in the joy of what thou art. You've set my heart free, Lord. I don't need my resume anymore. I can lay it down. I can sing. I can dance. I can tell people about Jesus Christ and what he's done. Secondly, it's superior because it's permanent. Not only is it an oath, it's sworn with an oath. Verses 23 to 25, unlike the priests of the Old Covenant, there were many, right? We know our Old Testament pretty well. Some were good priests and some were bad priests. But one thing they had all in common, what was that? They all did what? The same thing you're going to do. They all die. And a dead priest cannot get it done. You need a living priest. I don't care how noble and virtuous that ruling elder is, he cannot get it done for you. I can't get it done for you. Your session cannot get it done for you. Jewish historian Josephus, and I'm not going to quote Josephus much in a sermon. I heard, I heard that in homiletics class, don't ever quote, quote Josephus, but I had to quote this one. Listen to this. Josephus calculated that 83 high priests served from Aaron to the fall of the temple in 70 A.D., and you know what happened to all of them? They all died. But Christ, the one promised, who's been given this priesthood, not in the order of Aaron, but in the order of Melchizedek, he lives forever. And his priesthood will never be replaced. It's permanent. You see, though he died once for sins, the just for the unjust, to bring you to God, he rose from the dead on the third day, bodily, physically, Literally, he literally, corporally, bodily rose. And when he rose, you were justified. Because in his resurrection is your justification. You can stand 
secure and free because he is the Lord your righteousness. And we're told consequently, verse 25, he's able to save to the uttermost. That is for all time and completely those who draw near to God through him. This verb save is to be understood in the most comprehensive sense. Christ saves us, Leon Moore says, from all that humanity needs saving from. Totally, completely, for all times, you're saved. Completely, to the uttermost. From sin's guilt and sin's power. All you need to do is to draw near. So this morning, do you have any guilt? That you're suppressing this morning? Let me tell you, there's a fountain filled with blood that's greater than your sin. Your sins are many, but His mercy is more. Are you, You're wondering whether you have access. You know, it, it says there, unless He's without blemish, He can't come. I'm going to be straight up with you. You have blemish. You have sin. And the wages of sin is death. But the good news is that the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Well, Pastor, this is All Saints Reformed Presbyterian Church. Some of these people have been walking with the Lord for 50 years. I don't care. Are you trusting Jesus Christ? Are you looking to Him and Him alone for your salvation? He's able. He's willing. Are you, are you undergoing spiritual attack? Last week on vacation, I was undergoing spiritual attack. Yeah, I don't know why. I was doubting my salvation. Yeah, I've been doing this for, I don't know, since the mid-80s as a Christian following Jesus. And I was doubting, and I was struggling. And I wrote one of my ruling elders, and I said, pray for me. I'm struggling. I'm under attack. You know what? Within a day, God began to give mercy Right? As I continue to call out and cry to God, Oh Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. He kept just strengthening me. You know what I did? I kept going to the Word of God. I kept coming to the promises of God, praying those promises, calling upon those promises, asking Him to give me faith. And He did that. He gave me assurance. He's willing and He's able. You see, there's a fountain filled with blood. Drawn from Emmanuel's veins, all the sinners, sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Lose all their guilty stains. As if it couldn't get any better, notice what the second half of verse 25 says. He always lives to make intercession for you. Right? We become obsessed, and I think rightly so in some ways, that we say Jesus died once for sins, right? It's unrepeatable. But do you notice that Jesus Christ who died once for sins, has been raised for your justification, has now ascended into heaven. And do you know that he's in heaven? He's not idle. He's not just idly sitting up there with the angels singing around him. You know what he's doing? Father, you see this wound? You see Jim? He's struggling. See Susie? See this wound here, Father? How about these, Father? They're crying. His very presence is crying for your forgiveness right now. Forgive them. Forgive them. Forgive them. And it's not because God is somehow reluctant on org, right? Just some kind of a tyrant, you know. Who gave the Son? The Father. 
The Father so loved the world that he gave the Son. The Father's not reluctant saying, no, I don't want, I'm stingy. I don't want to give them grace. No. What more can he say than to you he has said, right? If he who did not spare his own Son, will he not with him also give you all things? Why is it we have this picture of God as some big meanie up in heaven? That's your flesh. That's the devil. That's satanic. That's untrue. God is your Father. Do you know this? Now, I have to digress. Just a moment, please. Before God is anything else, God is Father. Notice that. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Before He's Creator, there was the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Before He's Redeemer, He's Father. Now, some of you have mixed up feelings about your dads because your dads let you down. And they've done all kinds of whack jobs on your heart. But I'm here to tell you there's a father who spared not his own son, who gave him up freely for you to believe and to trust him. He's not going to withhold anything from you that's good for his glory. Believe his word. Bring your heart into captivity to the word of God. Be transformed the renewing of your mind so those thoughts about your dad don't confuse you and confuse your heart about what's true. Christ has this eternal ministry where he prays for us, just as he did for, for Simon. Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you, Peter, that he may sift you as wheat. But Peter, I have prayed for you that your faith shall not fail. This week, some of you are going to go out and you're going to doubt God. You're going to contemplate walking away. But Jesus is praying for you, pleading for you, interceding for you, that you might continually draw near through his meritorious work. So it's an oath. It's permanent. And then lastly and quickly, it's perfect. Verses 26 to 28. The Old Testament priest like myself and like all your elders and every officer in the church, were anything but perfect. They were full of many weaknesses and, and sins, but we're reminded that Christ had no such weakness nor sin. Notice his qualifications. We're told in verse 26, it was fitting. It was suitable. It was appropriate that the need that we had would be suitably met by God's Son. For he's holy, he's God in the flesh, he's innocent, he's devoted to what's good, he's unstained, he's without blemish, he's undefiled by sin. He's separated from sinners, he's exalted above the heavens as God's priest king. And saints, unlike the Levitical priests of the Old Covenant, we're told in verse 27, he does not need to offer daily sacrifices for his own sins, and then for the people, then since those for the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. You see, Christ was both priest and sacrifice. His own willing offering once for all time, never to be repeated. It's finished. Nothing can be added to it nor taken from it. It's the perfect sacrifice. You see, the old covenant priest would take the blood of the lamb into the Holy of Holies once a year as a sign of the wages of sin and the costliness of forgiveness. 
But when Christ offered his sacrifice, do you know that he did not go into the temple there in Jerusalem? You know where he went? He went into the very holy of holies itself, no longer the picture book, but into heaven itself. And he brought the sin of a son of Adam that was blameless, undefiled, and he put it on the altar. And it made propitiation so that the wrath of God might be satisfied against your sin. For the soul that sins shall surely die. If you're a sinner and you have not trusted Christ, you're going to die. But God, but God, who is rich in mercy, put forth his son for you. Well, you don't understand. You don't know what I've done. You don't know. Oh, I know I don't know. I don't know what you've done, but I know what he's done. And I know what he's doing now in heaven for his own, for his elect. Spurgeon said, it was a willing sacrifice. Oh, this makes the sacrifice of Christ so blessed and glorious. In the old covenant, they dragged the bulls and they drove the sheep to the altar. They bound the calves with cords, but not so with Christ. None did compel Christ to die. He laid down his own life voluntarily For he had the power to lay it down and the power to take it up. Oh, beloved, what sacrifice, what love the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have shown on us. He tells us in verse 28, For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of oath, which came later, hundreds of years, then the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. You see, the law made nothing perfect. It just condemned The law is not your hope. The law is your judge. But Jesus Christ is your Savior if you come to him. (sighs) These Christians being addressed here in Hebrews are like us in many ways, are they not? They were allowing the circumstances of life, right? Their culture, like ours, perhaps, was falling apart. They cut the news on, right? Jerusalem news. They cut it on, and they saw all the debauchery, all the sin, all the wickedness. Where have all the leaders gone? What can the righteous do when the foundations be destroyed? They were looking at all of it, and they were getting anxious. I woke up the other night anxious just because of so many things. You know, I think we need to strike the balance. I need you to pray for me. I'll strike the balance of being informed without being overwhelmed. I think sometimes too much news. Matt spoke of this last week. Fox, Fox and too much Fox News. Not a good thing. That will do you great harm. Wall Street Journal, great harm. CNN, MSNBC, I don't care where you're getting it. You better spend more time in Psalm 11, verse 4, that says, when the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? You know what it says? The Lord is in his heaven. Let the earth be silent. We don't need to get anxious. Many of us are fearful. I hear it. We're more political than we are Christian. We're fearful. We're fearful of the world. No, God calls us to go out for the world. He died for people outside 3000 Grove. We need to be active in his vineyard, preaching the gospel of the Lamb, that there's forgiveness, there's peace for your soul in Jesus Christ if you only come to him. That should be our mission, not, oh, you know, what this, what that. I know, I know, I'm there. I'm one of you. These feet on these shoes are clay. I'm just like you. 
You see, the answer to our difficulties and fears and temptations today is not to abandon Christ, nor would it be so foolish to abandon the new covenant for the old, right, for the picture book, to go back to the training wheels. You go into a restaurant, and everybody in there is on a, with, a, with a little special blankie and a, and, a, and a bottle, a grown adults. That's what's happening. That looks so foolish. But that's what they were doing. You see, beloved, the only answer is to turn to Jesus Christ who lived and died and rose again and now lives to make intercession, to, to go back to the God who's sworn and will not go back on his word, you are my son forever. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. God has sworn. He's made a promise. We don't need to doubt him. We doubt ourselves. Tim Kelly used to say that all the time. He used to say, you know, we need to stop doubting God and start doubting ourselves. When's the last time you doubted yourself? Doubt self and believe God. May God give us grace. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for such a high priest. It's really beyond my, capa- my capability to, to talk about the greatness that is your Son. I'm so inadequate. But I thank you that your Spirit accompanies the preaching of your Word and that it ministers in ways that I can't and the ways that no elder can except the great elder, the Lord Jesus Christ, our great high priest, whoever lives now to make intercession for us, who's able to save completely, completely, not almost, not 99%, but completely all of those who come to you through him. We pray and we would ask your blessing as we come to the table and are reminded and have fellowship with Jesus Christ, our great high priest even now, in the power of the Holy Spirit. Oh, Father, make us holy. Make us a holy people, a people who love sinners, who are quick to speak a word in season regarding the hope that's within us. We pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.